Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Thanks, Eric. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. If you've been coming around our church for more than a couple weeks, you knew exactly where we were headed this morning because we have been in Matthew chapter 5 for the better part of the past couple months. Uh, Matthew 5, if you're unfamiliar, basically kicks off something called the Sermon on the Mount, which was one of Jesus' most famous teachings of all time. And I'll go ahead and warn you, uh, this morning with today's passage, uh, we have our work cut out for us. Because in my experience, there may not be a teaching from Jesus that is more blatantly ignored by more Christians than the one that we're going to cover today. Um, A large portion of this teaching, what Jesus is going to get into with today's passage, is simply about how we treat those who are opposed to us in some way, or or those that we see as opposed to us in some way. To use Jesus' language from later in the passage, This passage is about how we treat our enemies. And whether you and I would use the word enemy to describe these people or not, I still think this is a category that a lot of us have. And we have people that fit in this category, or at least a lot of us do. We're going to get into that more as we go along. But first, I need you to notice that you and I are often discipled to see people as enemies, We're often trained to see others in terms of those who are for us and those who are against us. So we encounter this belief, this practice at a personal level when we ascribe to life philosophies like don't let the haters get you down. And you've just got to eliminate negative people from your life. We say things like this in our society and that mentality is training you to see other people as enemies to one degree or another. We hear it, especially right now in our society, we hear this mentality at a political level. When we start talking like our political party of choice is the good guys and everyone else is the bad guys. We sometimes are even trained to see other people like this at a global scale. When we believe things like America being the greatest country ever and every other nation is either jealous of us or wants to destroy us. All of these ways of thinking about the world in a lot of ways are training us to see other people or other groups of people antagonistically, to use Jesus' language, to view them in essence as enemies. And Christians are not exceptions to having this us versus them mindset, far from it actually. In some cases, I would say Christians are actually the most guilty of this mentality, at least some Christians. So as we speak right now, as an example, a popular Christian recording artist, I won't mention his name because that's not the point, but a popular Christian recording artist is touring major U.S. cities. In each city, he sets up a massive public outdoor worship concert. He neglects to file for a permit to do that, which is legally required. 
He gathers hundreds of people in defiance of local COVID-19 safety protocols, and then he rants on Twitter afterwards about how the government is so opposed to him and they're persecuting him for fining him for doing all of that. So he is, in essence, manufacturing enemies. He's seeking out this sort of antagonistic lens of viewing other people. So whether it's something like that, or viewing culture through the lens of the culture wars, if you've heard that terminology thrown around, whatever the particular view or expression of it is, sometimes Christians are on the front lines. They are the most guilty of seeing the world in this way, this approach to other people as being very antagonistic. And the irony, I think, is that an awful lot of the time, the the people that we antagonize for being against us or persecuting us or whatever language that we use, at least in America, the irony is that many of them are not actually opposed to us at all. We just view it that way. But here's the thing, even if they were really opposed to us, I think sometimes our response and our posture towards those people ends up revealing that we have not taken Jesus' teachings to heart that he talks about today. Because in what we're about to read in this passage, Jesus is going to encourage an altogether different approach to our enemies, to those who seem opposed to us. And and I'll just say right from the start, what Jesus lays out in today's passage is is not only beautiful, it, it not only is a strategy towards enemies that has stood the test of time through the lives of people like Martin Luther King Jr. and people like that, but it is also precisely what our American society needs at this moment in history, precisely what is needed in our world. So, All of that said, the stakes are high to understand what Jesus has to say here. So let's dive in and see what he says. You can start following along with me in verse 38 of our passage. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So Jesus kicks things off in this passage the same way he has for the past several weeks of the Sermon on the Mount. He quotes a command or a principle of some sort from the Old Testament. This time, it's the one that says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's Exodus 21, 24, if you want to go back and read it on your own time. Now, as barbaric as that principle, an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, might sound to us today, it's actually a very helpful principle that lies at the heart of our justice systems to this day. It's often called the lex talionis, which means loosely, the punishment should fit the crime. That's the idea. Very important, very foundational idea when it comes to justice. And and this is a very important idea both back then and today in our society. And here's the reason why. Because human nature, anytime you are wronged, human nature is usually not just to get even with the person who wronged you. It's to get what? To get ahead, right? So you shove me, I punch you in the face. Uh, if you mildly gossip about me one time, I go and gossip about you to 10 different people. If you subtweet me online, I clap back at you and tag five of my followers to pile on the argument, right? The human tendency is towards escalation in conflict. But this idea that the Old Testament lays out, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is meant to curb, it's meant to throttle that tendency in us towards escalation in conflict. It was meant to ensure that justice was proportionate and not excessive in what it was. 
But Jesus is about to go a step further than all of that. He's about to take it a step further than that Old Testament principle. Take a look at verse 39 with me. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Do not resist the one who is evil. Now, just for clarification, that phrase, do not resist, is not actually the best translation of what Jesus says, because it makes it sound like we're not supposed to do anything about evil or injustice at all, that we're just supposed to sit back and watch it happen. I don't think that's what Jesus means at all, for one, because Jesus never does that towards evil and injustice, but also because of what this word means. The word resist in that passage is actually the language in the Greek of a military counterstrike against an opponent. That's what the word meant. So more accurately, what Jesus was saying here is do not use violence to resist an evil person or do not retaliate or take revenge against an evil person. Instead, Jesus gives us four examples for how we might respond in those types of scenarios. When someone wrongs us, when someone mistreats us, here's some ideas for how followers of Jesus might respond. Pick it back up with me in the second half of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Verse 40, if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, first let me say, it is really easy to misinterpret Jesus' teachings here. So if the two options in a conflict or in a fight with somebody else, if the two options are fight or flight, are you guys familiar with that terminology? So fight is take revenge, fight back. Flight is just sort of cower in fear or walk away or whatever. If those are the two options, fight or flight, I think most people assume that what Jesus is instructing us to do is flight, right? They assume that what he's saying is you cower in fear, you don't do anything, you walk away passively, you walk away from the conflict. But if you read the passage closely, you'll see that that's not actually what Jesus says, is it? He doesn't say, if someone slaps you, let them. He doesn't say, if someone takes your shirt, give them your shirt. What he actually says is to offer more than they desired to take. Offer more than what they demanded of you in return. What Jesus proposes then is not fight back and it's also not disengage and walk away, but rather a third, creative, surprising approach to being wrong. That's what Jesus is setting forward here. Now, we need to understand that with each of these examples that he gives, all four of them, Jesus is imagining a scenario where someone who is seen as a superior to you is acting in a demeaning and belittling way towards you. That's sort of the idea. That's the scenario that Jesus has in mind. Someone in a superior social position uses their power to mistreat you in some sort of way. And in each example, Jesus is going to show us a third, creative, surprising, nonviolent sort of response. So we don't have time to go into each one of them today, just for time's sake, but I will show you just the first one to sort of illustrate the point of what Jesus is proposing here. So let's talk about the slap that Jesus mentions. Jesus says, Imagine that someone slaps you on the right cheek. So I need you to think about this. Put your thinking caps on. Think about the mechanics of how this would have worked. For someone to slap you on the right cheek, assuming that most people are right-handed, would mean it is a backhanded slap, 
That's how you would have to do that. Or it's a left-handed slap, but either way, it's a very shameful, shaming sort of violence. So this isn't just like a street fight, like someone tries to rob you in some alleyway. What this is, is someone who is seeking to shame you with a backhanded slap or something like that. So Jesus says in that scenario, you don't hit them back in return, but you also don't cower in fear and limp away. I don't know why you would limp. I'm not sure why I said that. It's your face, not your leg. But you get what I'm saying. You wouldn't just walk away, right? You wouldn't cower in fear. Instead, you pick a third option. It says instead you turn, and more literally, that word means turn and face your opponent, and you, and you offer them the other cheek. Now, it's entirely possible that if you do that, they will choose to hit you again. That's a possible result of that scenario. But if they, choose you, if they choose to hit you again, because you have turned the other cheek to them, they will now have to strike you with their forehand rather than their backhand. They will now have to strike you not as an inferior, like they did before, but as an equal. Does that make sense? Everybody see how that works? And the other three examples that Jesus gives have a similar effect. In each of them, you're not retaliating, but you're also not responding passively to the other person. You are reclaiming your dignity and your worth in the eyes of the other person in some way, but you're doing it in a creative, nonviolent sort of way. So psychologists agree that one of the most significant things that oppression and mistreatment attempts to take away is the free will and choice of the person being mistreated. That's what oppression does. It takes away their free will and choice. And in a very subversive way, when you respond the way Jesus says to respond, you are communicating to the person who wrongs you that your worth, your value, and the image of God in you is not something that can be taken away. No matter how they choose to treat you, no matter what they choose to do, because your dignity and worth go deeper than a slap, deeper than a cloak or a tunic, deeper than an inconvenience, and deeper than your wallet. So what you're doing is you're reclaiming dignity and worth in the eyes of the other person, but you're doing it in a nonviolent sort of way, non-retaliatory sort of way. Now, quickly, before we move on, I do need to make one important clarification about what Jesus teaches here. I don't think Jesus would have used the same instructions that he gives here to a person who is being physically or sexually abused. I don't think that's what Jesus has in mind here at all. Jesus could have used that as an illustration here that happened back in his day just like it does in ours, but he didn't use that as an example. I think that's significant. Abuse, in my opinion, falls in an entirely different category than what Jesus is talking about here. That's just not in his purview at this moment. So if you're in that type of scenario where that type of abuse is happening to you, here's what I would advise you to do. Tell the authorities, tell us, we will make sure that it gets dealt with right away. Is that clear? So we'll make sure everybody's good on that because that's actually a very different situation than what Jesus is talking about. But he does say in other social sort of scenarios where you are being mistreated in unfair but legally permissible sorts of ways, that you are to respond with a creative, non-violent, non-vengeful sort of alternative. Turning the other cheek, offering another item of clothing, going the second mile, and lending and even giving to the one who wants to borrow from you. 
which means in many cases you turn it into an opportunity. You, you turn violence, you turn being mistreated into an opportunity to serve and benefit the one who is opposed to you. So there are a few different terms that have been used throughout the years to describe this ethic from Jesus specifically. So sometimes people call it pacifism, Sometimes it's called nonviolence or non-retaliation or something like that. And while those are fine terms to use, uh, I'm not crazy about any of them because they all seem to define what Jesus is saying by what they aren't. They define it negatively, right? So it'd be kind of like calling a healthy marriage non-adultery. It's like technically true, but I don't know that that's the most descriptive way to describe that. So my preference is just to call this what Jesus calls it in the latter half of the passage, which is loving your enemies. That's what Jesus is talking about here, loving your enemies. So pick it back up with me in verse 43. He says, you have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So Jesus again quotes from the Old Testament, kind of. The reason I say kind of is because the second half of that quote, hate your enemy, you won't actually find that anywhere in your Bible. So if you search all the way through Old Testament and New, you will not find anywhere that says to hate your enemy. Some of you were like, okay, that's relieving because I was kind of thinking if the Bible says hate your enemy, it seems like th that might be part of the problem here. So that, that's not actually in the Bible anywhere. The Bible never says hate your enemy. What it does say is love your neighbor. But over time, people had taken that to mean, oh, if they're not my neighbor, that means I can hate them. It's a pretty backwards way to interpret that verse, but that's what a lot of people thought. So it would be kind of like if Anna and I tell our four-year-old Wit, Wit, you cannot hit your sister in the face, which happens way more often than it should. But if we say, Wit, you cannot hit your sister in the face, and he responded by going, so you're telling me I can hit anyone who's not my sister? No, that's not what we meant at all, and also you're grounded, right? That would be our response, because that's not the point at all, but that's how people interpreted this. If they're not my neighbor, if they aren't a fellow Israelite with me, that means I can hate them because I'm only obligated to love my neighbor. Jesus clarifies that misunderstanding of the Old Testament with this, verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So Jesus says... This ethic of loving other people, it applies to your neighbors all the way down to your enemies. So real quickly, to understand what Jesus says, let's talk about who an enemy is. I think the word that Jesus uses for enemy in this passage is extremely broad in its meaning. It can be, it be any number of different things. Here, I think, is a good working definition. An enemy is any and every person that we consider to be opposed to us, whether they truly are or not. Any and every person we consider opposed to us, whether they truly are or not. So what Jesus says here would include personal enemies, social enemies, political enemies, geopolitical enemies. It encompasses everything from the person at your job who makes life a little more frustrating for you sometimes, all the way up to the terrorists trying to kill you. All of those people Jesus is including in the category of someone who could be an enemy. In other words, if your instinct is to go, does he even mean blank? The answer is most likely yes. He does even mean that person. Now, we also need to realize, and I think this is especially important for our modern society at this moment, 
that enemies can be individual people or they can be groups of people. Individual people, groups of people, singular or plural enemies. So, for example, if you see all Democrats in our country as enemies of freedom, that counts in what Jesus is saying to do here. If you see all Republicans as enemies of democracy, that also counts in what Jesus is saying here. If you have a deep-seated resentment in you towards all black people or all white people or all rich people or all poor people or any other class or grouping of people, if there is a a deep-seated resentment and opposition towards those people in your heart, that counts. All of those people are included in the types of people Jesus says we are to love. So just to make sure that we're all following here, let me give you three of what I would consider to be telltale signs that you see somebody as an enemy. Whether you should or not, three telltale signs that someone is viewed as an enemy in your life. First, you have anger fantasies about them. Anger fantasies about them. I'm assuming by your giggles that you know what anger fantasies are. Anger fantasies are when you imagine what you would love to say to somebody else if you wouldn't be a horrible person for having saying those things to them, right? That's what an anger fantasy is. If you are having those towards a particular person or group of people, that means that you see them on some level as an enemy. Second, another sign of an enemy is if you would rejoice if something bad happened to them. If you would rejoice, privately or publicly, if something bad happened to them. So if when something bad happens to a person or a group of people in our society, if if you're fond of smiling and delivering phrases like, well, that's karma, serves them right, what goes around comes around, right? And you rejoice in your heart as you're saying those things, that means you view that person on some level as an enemy. Uh, Real quickly, to my more progressive friends in the room. We need to talk real quick. I'm not trying to point fingers, but also I'm a little bit trying to point fingers. Um, A couple weeks ago, when the news was delivered that Trump tested positive for COVID, some of you guys threw a little private party in your brain. Right? I, I won't make you nod. I won't make you raise your hand. But some people did it. All right, so here's what I'm saying on that. I'm not saying that Trump didn't walk right into it, okay? I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there's a difference between noticing and observing that actions have consequences and rejoicing, on the other hand, that another human being just got a potentially life-threatening disease. You can do the first one without doing the second one, I promise. And so if there's anybody in your life, any group of people in your life where you are inclined to celebrate when something bad happens to them, whatever it is, that means you view them on some level as an enemy. Last one, you probably view someone as an enemy if you can't bring yourself to say anything positive about those people. You can't bring yourself to say anything positive. So if there's a person that you can't say any, I'll add, unqualified positive thing about. So maybe you can say something positive about them, but you always feel like you have to follow it with a, but here's the thing about them. That still counts. You're still viewing them as an enemy. If the only things to naturally come out of your mouth about a certain person or group of people are negative, cynical, cutting, tearing them down in some way, That means you view that person or those people as enemies. So that list probably isn't exhaustive. 
but it should probably help you get started trying to think about, is there anybody in my life that I view in this way, that I see as an enemy, whether I should or not? And Jesus says that the way you should treat those people in your life is that you should, quote, love them. You should love those people. Now, if you've been around City Church for very long at all, you have probably heard us talk about how the way we think about love in our modern society is very different from what love means in the Bible. Usually when we say we love someone in our modern society, what, what we mean is that person makes me feel good or, or I have some sort of pleasant feelings towards that person. That's usually what we mean by love. And for a lot of us, for Jesus to say, have pleasant feelings towards your enemies seems like a very odd instruction and maybe even an impossible instruction, right? Because you can't command yourself to have certain feelings towards someone. But what Jesus means by love in this passage is actually altogether different. It's the Greek word agape, and it really refers to the love of the will. It means to actively pursue and prefer the well-being of another person to your own, even when your feelings don't align with doing that. It's pursuing another person's good regularly and persistently in various ways. And Jesus says followers of Jesus are called to do that, are called to behave that way towards their enemies. And again, I'll, I'll reemphasize, I don't even know that a lot of us have enemies like people in the Bible did. I don't know if we even have outright enemies, but even if we did have those types of people in our life, people who are actively out to get us in some way, this is how we're called to treat them, with love towards them, with preference towards them. Love them, honor them above ourselves, and actively seek after their good. So let's brainstorm for a bit what this might look like. What might it look like in our lives today to explore loving our enemies in tangible sorts of ways? Let's say first that you have a boss or supervisor that you work for, they absolutely have it out for you in some way, they criticize you constantly, it seems like they always pick you as the person that has to work late all of the time. So in that scenario, that person is out to get you, you see them as your enemy, Maybe you agree to work late when they ask. And maybe you show up the next morning after you just worked late the night before with your supervisor's favorite espresso drink in your hand. Maybe you do that on a regular basis. Maybe you look for ways to compliment them, go out of your way to say nice things about them in front of other people at your job. I should have emphasized on the espresso drink. I need to emphasize uh, espresso that doesn't have any type of poison in it. That's important that you don't put poison in the drink. Just felt like I needed to add that. Um, the next example, another example of what this might look like, let's say you have a friend that you recently had some sort of falling out with. Something happened between the two of you, you're not on great terms anymore. In that scenario, maybe, maybe this person is, is going out and gossiping about you. In that scenario, Maybe you seek them out. You take them out for lunch. Maybe you get together with them, ask them how their week is, ask what's, what's good and what's hard in their life and how you might be able to help with what's going on in their life. Maybe you seek them out and look for ways to proactively serve them in response. 
Uh, let's get real practical on the topic of enemies. Maybe a category you wouldn't have thought about in this way before, but it's probably accurate to some of us. Let's talk about in-laws. So I have great in-laws. I should say that. They listen to this podcast, but even if they didn't, I would say that. I have great in-laws, but it's come to my attention that some people do not have great in-laws, that some of you may have less than great in-laws in some way. And some of you, maybe your in-laws love to just go after you. Like they love to tear you down. They're, they're just constantly speaking in disparaging ways about you. Maybe they're just not fans of you at all and you feel like they oppose you on a regular basis. So for them, maybe you make it a point from now on every time you're around them to go out of your way to help them do something around the house. Say, hey, I know you've been talking about that project you wanna work on around the house for a while, I'd love to help you with that this afternoon, anything you need. Maybe you take them out for, for dinner or for coffee or whatever it is. Maybe for your in-laws, maybe you make it a point every time you hang out with them in sort of a, 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 a group setting where other people are listening, you make it a point every single time to say something that is very complimentary of them in a group setting. Even if you're thinking, I don't even know how I'd do that because I can't think of anything to say, I'll give you a freebie. If nothing else, you can thank them for raising a wonderful human being that you get to be married to, right? If nothing else, you can thank them for that. You can recognize them for that. So whatever it is, look for ways to love and actively serve and benefit, seek the well-being of someone that you see as an enemy. And honestly, even if doing any of those things that I just mentioned seem impossible to you, like you're just going, nope, I do not have it in me to do any of those things. Jesus actually gives us one practical idea right here in the verse we just read. He says, pray for those who persecute you. Pray for them. No matter how hard it is for you to love your enemy, no matter how difficult it is for you to be around that person or that group of people, one thing we can all do is regularly and proactively pray for that person. So again, those are just ideas. Feel free to take those, run with them, make them your own. Uh, it'll probably take some creativity, to be sure, depending on how unbearable that person is. It might take a lot of creativity, okay? Like, I won't lie. It, it may take some brainstorming. Maybe you need to get together with your life group this week and go, all right, here's the situation. Here's this person in my life. I have no idea how to seek after their well-being and good. Can you guys help me come up with some ideas? And maybe you do a brainstorming session with your life group. I've done that before with people in my life group. But whatever it is, however you need to approach it, one way or another, creatively serve and love your enemies. Now, because I know human nature, I know what a lot of us feel in response to a teaching like this from Jesus. I know what rises up in our chest as we think about what it might look like to love our enemies. We hear Jesus say things like, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And there's a real part of us that is like, yeah, Jesus, but that's just not an effective way to go about life. It just doesn't work. Jesus like, sure, that sounds nice to say in theory, love your enemies, but if I do that to the people that oppose me, if I love and serve my enemies, they're just going to keep walking all over me. They're just going to keep mistreating me. They're going to keep having it out for me. It sounds nice in theory, but it doesn't work. It's not effective 
in practice. And, and I think if we're honest, that's the biggest objection that a lot of us have, especially as modern Americans, to the idea of loving our enemies. Is we just say, it, it doesn't work. It's not effective at all. So let's talk about that for a bit. Let's talk about the belief that non-retaliation and loving your enemies doesn't practically work, that it's not practically effective. So I'm assuming that by us saying that, what we mean is that the alternative to loving our enemies, retaliation, getting even with the other person, getting back at the other person, I'm assuming what we mean is that those approaches are effective, or at least that they're more effective than loving those people. So let's consider whether or not that's accurate. Imagine a scenario with me. Let's say again, someone at your job, maybe this time it's a, it's a fellow colleague, let's say they are just absolutely out to get you. They hate you with everything in them for no particular reason. They just want to make your life a living nightmare at work. So let's say because of that, they start spreading rumors about you at the office that aren't true, which, which leads to people at the office having to sort of pick sides between you and them because there, there are factions forming, right? We're, we're approaching a civil war in the workplace. They're having to pick teams. And let's say that in return to them gossiping about you, you go and tell your boss that that other person has been leaving early every single day and not staying all the way until 5 o'clock. And let's say that in response to that, that other person goes and tells the boss that you have been stealing money from the company, and then you, and then you get fired as a result of that, and now every, everybody else at the office is walking on tiptoes around that other person because they're wondering, when are they going to get me fired? So I think more often than not, something like that is what ends up happening when revenge and retaliation is everybody's M.O. When we operate in that way, I think things like that end up happening. Whether it's that severe or not, that is what happens. It creates an antagonistic environment where everybody's trying to get even, everybody's trying to get ahead, and it makes life miserable for everybody. So let me ask you, does that sound like it's effective? I mean, best we can say is it's effective in the short term, right? If we're just being optimistic about it, we can say it's effective in the short term, horribly ineffective, and detrimental in the long term. Does that sound like it works to you? So let's do one other one. This one will do it on a slightly bigger scale, slightly different scenario, and this one's a real scenario. And let me just say, I, I get that what I'm about to do is a little risky in a room with a lot of people, but I need you to see the importance of what Jesus teaches us here. Here is what I would describe as a brief summary of the past several months in the United States of America. Some police officers respond to those resisting arrest with the excessive use of force, in many cases unnecessarily killing and harming men and women of color. Some people respond to that excessive use of force by police officers with violent retaliatory protest. Many of them were not violent, but some of them were. They were violent, there was arson, there was rioting. In response to that rioting, our president sends in marked and unmarked officers to quell the violence by shooting rubber bullets and tear gas at people, even the people who were protesting peacefully. In response to that, some of the protests grow more violent in more cities, and in responding to that, at least one 17-year-old responds by crossing state lines with an assault rifle, anticipating that there will be an opportunity to use it. 
And he does. He kills two people. In response to events like that, people continue to threaten, harm, and even kill some police officers. So with all of that laid out, let me ask you the same exact question. Is retaliation working in our country? Is it effective? Because I'm watching all of this go down, and it sure doesn't seem like it's working. It doesn't seem like it's effective. And I get that some of us could respond to any of that by going, well, it's better than what would happen if nobody did anything. And, and maybe you're right. I don't know that we ever respond that way to know if it's any better. But all I'm saying is if we are going to cast doubt upon the teachings of Jesus because they're not effective, let's at least have the humility to admit that our solutions aren't all that effective either. That the alternative is not all that effective either. It doesn't work either. And far more importantly than, than what works or doesn't work, far more importantly than what's effective or ineffective, and this needs to be said, we don't obey Jesus primarily because it's effective. We obey Jesus because it's faithful. So even if loving your enemies was the least effective thing to do in the universe, we would still do it because our goal is to be faithful to who our God is. Listen, if you only obey Jesus when his teachings make complete, total, rational sense to you, you are not actually following Jesus. You're following your own reason. And if, if we're going to be able to be the type of people that, that God designed us to be, we're going to have to learn to value faithfulness over effectiveness, especially when we define effectiveness by worldly standards. We're going to have to learn how to be faithful to who God is, which is exactly what Jesus gets into next in the passage. Because next, he lays out what our motivation should be for living this way towards our enemies. Why, at the end of the day, should we choose love over revenge? Why should we choose serving our enemies over retaliating against them? Here's why. Look at verse 45 with me. So Jesus has just said, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, 45, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So the reason that we love our enemies is because that's precisely what God does. That's why. That's the reason. That's why it's faithful to love our enemies is because it's consistent with who God is and what he does. So to illustrate this, Jesus actually references the weather. I love how Jesus' brain works. That's not at all where I would go with this, but Jesus references the weather. He says, God causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. So you and I probably think of sun as good and rain as bad, right? That's how we think of weather. But you need to understand that Jesus was speaking here to a largely agrarian society. Lots of farmers in the crew that he's addressing at this moment. So for them, for farmers, sun and rain were the two key ingredients to making crops grow, right? To, to their survival at the end of the day. And more significantly, sun and rain were the two ingredients that as a farmer you had no control over whatsoever. You were completely reliant on the weather to make your crops grow, to be successful, and to survive. So Jesus' point here is that God the Father graciously provides for all sorts of people, even those who are outright opposed to him. 
So God himself loves his enemies. He seeks the good of his enemies. He seeks after the well-being of even those who outright suppose him, oppose him. I'm sorry. That's who God is. He, he loves his enemies. That's in God's very nature and character to love his enemies. And as most of us know, there is no clearer example of God doing this than what happened at the cross. Romans 5.10 says that while we were enemies of God, he reconciled us to him by the death of his son on the cross. God's first response to his enemies was not to smite them or to take revenge on them or to nuke them off the face of the planet, but rather to send his son to die in their place. And that son, Jesus, as he breathed his last breaths on the cross, would cry out to the men and women that put him there on the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Jesus loved his enemies. He sought the good of his enemies until the very end of his life. That is what the posture of God looks like towards those who oppose him. At the very heart of the gospel message is a God who put on flesh and died for the good of his enemies. And it was that act itself, Jesus dying on our behalf, that gave us as followers of Jesus the ability to live in precisely the same way towards our enemies. By the spirit of Jesus living within us, we can take the same posture towards people that oppose us, whoever they might be. When we choose to take up the mantle of loving our enemies like Jesus did, Jesus says we become children, we become imitators of God himself. We become a living, breathing picture of the type of God who dies for his enemies. We become a picture of who God is to a world that desperately needs that picture, especially right now. We become a refreshing, distinctive presence for a world gone mad with hatred towards their enemies. And that has always been the goal for us as followers of Jesus, to become a refreshing, distinctive, countercultural presence in the world, which is precisely where Jesus lands in this passage. Take a look at the last three verses with me, starting in verse 46. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus says, listen, anybody can love the people that love them. That's easy. That takes almost no effort at all. If someone does good things for you, it's easy to do good things in return. If someone treats you well, it's easy to treat them well in return. Almost every human being does that. What takes effort is loving the people who aggressively do not love you, do not care for you, treating the people well who treat you terribly. But, and this matters, that is precisely the ethic that faith in Jesus generates in us. And it looks like nothing the world has ever seen. What our society has gotten so very good at over the past handful of years is turning friends into enemies. You see this everywhere from employee versus employer to white versus black to red state versus blue state to Americans versus foreigners. Whatever the case may be, 
This is what we're really good at, is making friends into enemies. We take a, a coworker or a classmate or a neighbor or a friend or an acquaintance, somebody that we are in regular proximity to, that we have a shot at friendship with, and once we find out that they're just a little bit difficult, a little bit frustrating, a little bit different than us, they voted for the other guy, as soon as we find that out, we quickly write them off and assign them to the other team. Sin leads us to turn friends into enemies. What Jesus is suggesting here in this passage is that we can turn enemies into friends. By choosing to love those who oppose us and are against us, we build bridges where there previously weren't any. And let me just ask you this. If you decided to love your enemies persistently in your life, if you decided to take that ethic, no matter how they treated you, do you not think some of them would change their posture towards you eventually? I'm not saying immediately. I'm not saying it happens overnight. I'm not saying you do one nice thing for them and they change their mind about you. But if you sought this as a regular pattern towards them, do you not think eventually they would change their mind about you, at least some of them? Do you not think if you, if you actively sought after the good of other people that had a tendency to antagonize people, do you not think it would eventually have an effect on their attitude towards other people in general? I think it just might. I think we've seen it happen before in human history. We've seen it happen all the time. It happened with Jesus towards us. But again, even if it doesn't yield any tangible results at all, it's still the faithful thing to do because it's what God did. It's who God is. So there's no doubt about it, living this way will be counterintuitive in nearly every way. It will be challenging, it will be difficult. There will be times where you just want to bail on it and, and just take every bit of frustration and anger you have out directly on the people who oppose you. But in those moments, here's what I would offer you. Remember you have the spirit of the resurrected Jesus living within you. You have the servant-hearted, enemy-loving blood of Jesus coursing through your veins. Hebrews 12.3 says it like this, Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. It's in what Jesus endured on our behalf that gives us the ability to love our enemies and it gives us the ability to hang in there even when it seems like the most difficult thing to do. To be sure, living your, uh, loving your enemies is an impossible ethic to live out on your own. Absolutely impossible. But you aren't on your own. You have the spirit of Jesus living within you. Let me pray for us.